to the UIAAA Connection podcast. GoFan and VNN are proud to be the exclusive sponsor of the UIAAA Connection. Now a combined company, GoFan and VNN provide a seamless integration for digital ticketing and athletic websites. Direct your fans to one place for all your athletic events, communications, and tickets to home and away games. Thank you to GoFan and VNN for their exclusive sponsorship of the UIAAA Connection. Welcome back to another edition of the UIAAA Connection podcast. I'm your host, Mark Hutch Hunter. Today we have as our special guest, Justin Climo, Certified Athletic Administrator the Director of Athletics at Stevenson School in California. Welcome to the podcast, Justin. Hutch, thanks for being here. I feel like I haven't seen you in quite a long time. <laughs> yeah, it's been two days since we, since I was on your podcast. That's good. Let's have you begin by sharing with our international audience now where you grew up, where you went to college, your first job, et cetera. International audience, look at you, spreading the love everywhere. Um, yeah, let's see here. So I was born and raised in the Bay Area in California, Alameda and Oakland specifically. I moved down to the Monterey Peninsula when I was 10. My mother was a high school teacher, coach, athletic director herself. And then she got into school administration and her first job was uh, down here in Monterey. So I lived here from 10 until 18. I actually went to school here at my alma mater where I am uh, currently working. And then from there, I graduated in 1993 and went to UC Davis, where I was fortunate enough to be part of the basketball program there. Uh, we won a national championship. While I was there, I started as a manager and then worked my way into an assistant coach role. And then from there, took a high school job in Sacramento, California at El Camino High School and did that taught English, coached basketball for nine years there. And then in 2008, uh, moved back down to the Monterey Peninsula, spent two years at an all-boys Catholic school in Salinas called Palma. And then this is year 14 at Stevenson. My first seven spent as the activities director, uh, history teacher, religion teacher, and then uh, last seven as the athletic director. That's incredible. Talk about the opportunity for youth sports on the Monterey Peninsula. Is it different than, let's say, obviously different than the the Bay Area because it's uh, more rural, I would guess, but I would think they've got it, maybe even more travel teams and stuff there. Interesting question. And what I would say is when I first moved back here, so in 2008, we still had a relatively um, robust offering in the recreational league uh, type sports. So you still had Little League Baseball, um, youth softball, YMCA was running basketball, all that stuff. Um, but obviously over the last 15, 16 years, the youth sports industrial complex has taken over the universe and there's a travel team in every sport, um, you know, four or five of them, regardless of how big your area is. And so um, the opportunities for youth sports are numerous. Uh, you just got to kind of figure out what 
path you want to take and how early you want to jump into, say, playing travel baseball versus just the local little league or pony league or whatever that happens to be. And as you would imagine, the local leagues get somewhat watered down as the travel teams pluck kids away from them and the travel teams get a little bit watered down because ultimately there are more than I would say the area can sustain at a level that Mm -hmm. uh, the travel teams once existed at. Um, And at the same time, that's kind of the nature of the beast and where we are in society these days is ultimately uh, figuring out how you can play as much as possible and how these um, organizations can uh, become profitable and stay profitable year round in a way in which they uh, once were not designed to do that. So uh, a little rambling soapbox there, but to your question, um, you know, our area, for those of you that aren't familiar, Salinas is about 30 minutes away from us on the coast here. And there's 150,000 people that live in Salinas and then the peninsula combined. So Seaside, Monterey, Marina, Pacific Grove, Carmel, Pebble Beach, the areas on the water, there's about, I don't know, probably 60,000 people combined, maybe 75. Um, and so an area of, you know, 250,000 max, um, you know, there's there's a handful of offerings that you can play locally, but for the most part, you got to kind of jump on the road and go up to San Jose or, or go over to the Central Valley and go up to Sacramento and and find games depending on how aspirational you may or may not be in your, in your chase uh, for whatever it is you're pursuing. That's well said. Let me ask a follow-up then. How does that affect the participation at your school? Is it good? Is it bad? Is, you know, your, your school's a little bit different. We'll get, I'll ask you a question later about where, exactly where it's located, but how, how is this youth industrial sports complex affecting you? Cause you're the head basketball coach also. Thankfully it's not. So we are a small enough school. We have 520 kids, give or take. We are a boarding school and a day school. So we have about 290 boarders and about 240 day students um and so ultimately from a philosophical standpoint we are very much air quote old school in regards to the multi-sport athlete approach and so we have 383 um excuse me that's the wrong number 83% of our athletes play in interscholastic or excuse me 83% of our students play in interscholastic athletes play interscholastic athletics at some point in the year of those about 50% of that 83% are multi-sport athletes. Um, And I would say, you know, another 25% are three sport athletes. And so ultimately we still preach being a seasonal athlete and we talk about the benefits of taking time off. And so there are still student athletes that play club sports. um, But it's one of those situations, especially within the residential community. If you want to do that, um, you kind of have to work out the logistics on your own. The school is not providing transportation to those things. Um, if that's something you want to do and you got to kind of figure out, for example, for volleyball, it's 30 minutes away to their facility. How are you getting there? Um, and, and kids that want to do it, they figure it out. And interestingly enough, Hutch, what's happened is 
we we have kids that come in as underclassmen that are real bullish on hey this is what i do i'm going to do this year round and by the time they're a sophomore they're playing multiple sports because all their friends are and because of the emphasis that we put on it um and so while it may have an initial impact in regards to what kids and families are thinking once they get in the mix and they understand the landscape of collegiate athletics and they understand the history of uh, our student athletes matriculating to college where 90% of the 31 kids we've put in college in the last two years are multiple multi-sport athletes. They kind of figure out, Oh, this is the path and what's being messaged out there in society isn't necessarily accurate. Well, I would say good for you and good for your school for being the proponent of the multi-sport athlete. For those who want a more in-depth discussion, listen to Judkins podcast or Justin's podcast <laughs> of me, which is coming up here next week, and we discuss that at length. Talk for a minute about the mentors, the leaders you had in your life that made a difference. Well, first and foremost, growing up as the kid of a high school coach and athletic director, you find yourself under the bleachers, spending all your time in the gym, whether you expect it to or not. Um, and so not even intentionally being involved with my mother and her job, I think was a major contributor to that. Um, and then going through this place, one of the unique things about our school is the relationship between the adults and the students in regards to that mentorship and that lifelong service where you're staying connected to your school. So I was fortunate enough when I came back to work with both my former basketball coach and my former cross country coach, uh, my former athletic director for my early years, and then to actually be the athletic director as my cross country coach was still the cross country coach. And so building those relationships and learning from them and being able to ask questions. Um, and then we just most recently named the the court in the gym after my former basketball coach who passed away last spring. Um, and so being able to circle back to Bill Hankison, Cleve Thayer, Jeff Young, uh, in my adult career and learn from the people that were teaching and coaching me as a adolescent was super valuable. Uh, but in regards to coaching, um, a couple standout, Bob Williams, who was the basketball coach at UC Davis, um, before he left for Santa Barbara and finished his career there was instrumental in helping me figure out how to be a professional. Um, and then when Coach Williams left, Brian Fogle took over and gave me uh, an opportunity to have my first college coaching job. And um, I got to spend a year with him figuring that out as he transitioned into a head coach and I transitioned into a, a full-time assistant. And then when I left to go take a high school job, a guy by the name of Bill Baxter, who was the athletic director at El Camino um, and their girls basketball coach uh, was the perfect situation for me to slide onto, under and cut my teeth and learn, um, you know, how to do things and how to show up for kids and how to organize and how to, um, you know, not get in your own way. And so I'd say those three were were the primary ones early on in my career in regards to helping me get off on the right foot. Let me ask you a little bit of a personal question here, Justin. What's your biggest failure or disappointment in life and what did you learn from it? Uh, I got a whole bunch of them. Um, and I don't know that I can point to a specific as the biggest one, but I can tell you that 
in regards to the question about mentors, when I was a manager at UC Davis, so my freshman year, um, I I got to school. I was planning on trying to play basketball. Went in. They had uh, back then in 1993. They would have preseason kind of open gyms with the team, and I went in and played. And I was like, well, this is beyond my level. And walked into the office and told coach, I'm like, yeah, hey, I don't know if this is gonna work out. Do you have anything else uh, that I can do in the program? And he's like, yeah, we need a manager. Our our head manager is a senior. He's gonna graduate this year, and we're looking for some people to get involved. And so. I was like, yeah, let me do that. And then um, during that freshman year of college, there's an adjustment period. You know, you're trying to figure out how to be an adult, how to live away from home. And there were times where I would say I was not the most reliable person. And uh, when we went away for the summer, um, you know, I went home, came back, worked here and then got back to school and went right back to the office, started working for about a week. And then um you know, nobody said anything. It was like, hey, welcome back. And then when the head manager uh, got back to school that second year, he was like, hey, let's go talk. And he was like, yeah, hey, this isn't going to work out. We're going to go a different direction. And I was like, what? Okay, I've been here working. Nobody said anything. But all right, cool. I appreciate the opportunity and left. And then Coach Williams called me back that afternoon and um, had me come in and kind of articulated. And it was interesting because, like, you know, the communication things don't always align. So he had tasked Phil with doing this. Phil wasn't there when I got back. And so I was already grinding. And, you know, co what coach explained was like, look, you were kind of a knucklehead last year and didn't do all the things that you needed to and weren't reliable. And you showed up this year and you look like a changed person. So I'm going to give you a second. And I had told Phil to let you go. But, uh, you know, I'm going to give you a second chance based on the the energy and effort that you brought to this uh, when you returned. And so it was one of these things where it was like I had failed, hadn't even known it was basically getting fired and then rehired uh, without even knowing it. But it was an eye-opening enough situation to help me understand that, you know, how you do anything is how you do everything. And you got to show up as your best self and you got to work and, and you got to make sure that the people that you're serving um, are the beneficiary of what you're doing and you're not a distraction. And it's one of the things where it's helped me in life where I talk with our coaches and even myself where it's like, hey, you got to keep the main thing, the main thing. And there's a lot of distractions out there. There's a lot of different things that you're trying to do. But at the end of the day, what is the thing that you are tasked with that is your mission? And, and how do you execute that without letting all these other distractions get in the way? That is a uh, great story. Thanks so much for sharing that. Let's get specifically now to your job as the athletic director and the head coach. And I'm wondering... You obviously have a little bit of a smaller school, but it's over 500 kids. Talk about, <clears throat> as far as time management goes, particularly this time of year, I would assume it's a little bit easier when it's the fall or the spring because you're not coaching at the same time. But talk about <clears throat> how detailed you have to be and uh, what a drain that is on you. So to your point, I am currently the girls basketball coach as I make my return to the girls sideline uh, for the first time in 10 years. Uh, I coached the boys for the last eight years and the girls for two years earlier around, I think, 2012. And then before that, I was coaching the boys, uh, coach cross country um, and 
was the activities director through the majority of that. When I became the athletic director, um, I was fortunate, as I said, to, to learn under Bill Baxter at El Camino, who was also the uh, girls basketball coach. And I got to kind of witness how you navigate um, making sure all your programs are being served while you're still head coaching. And even then, you have this feeling, uh, or at least I did, of as much as I enjoy coaching, ultimately to give all of my attention to being an administrator, um, I don't know that wearing both hats is the best model. And so forever, it's been, you know, how do I put one of these down so that I can better serve the rest of the, the programs that maybe not get maybe aren't getting the full attention, especially during the winter season, as you mentioned. And so ultimately, this was supposed to be my year where I wasn't coaching. Um, I had spent the last two years uh, helping mentor my replacement on the boys side, who's actually one of my former players from El Camino, um, and getting ready to step back. And our, uh, our girls coach, who is the director of residential life here, uh, that part of her job was getting a little bit bigger, and she wanted to take a step back. So um, I stepped into the role, um, on the girl side for this year, but to your point, how do you manage the tempo of, of work and things that are pulling on you throughout the year? So I would say the busiest part of the year is what I would say is our preseason period. It's before we start school. It's pretty normal for most schools, but as a residential community, Usually you're not coming back to school until school starts. And so we had to put something in place where we opened the dorms a couple weeks early so that we could start fall athletics at the same time or as close to the same time as all the other schools that we compete against. So we are not in a private school league, even though we're in a private school, the state of California, you play in the California Interscholastic Federation and our league uh, has 32 schools in it. And of that, there are divisions based on competitive equity, which I always kind of describe to be like Premier League soccer. If you win, you get promoted, you lose, you get relegated, but you're constantly moving around to be in what our former commissioner called playing in the right sandbox um, for, for the student athletes. And so ultimately, so would that be would that be Roger Blake? Uh, it was okay. Roger was the executive director at the state. And our, our section commissioner, Dwayne Morgan, made that comment, but they're all okay. in alignment in regards to where things are going out here. Sure. But, but in order to compete with the other schools, right, we were consistently starting two weeks behind everybody. And so we had to figure out a way to get students here relatively uh, similar to the, the other schools. And so the busiest time for me is that preseason period where I'm basically running uh, the students in the dorms making sure that our coaches are here, making sure that we have offerings in between practice sessions because the kids don't just get to go home. Um, you know, ultimately you, you can have non-consecutive double days. So what are you doing with all that dead time? Um, and so that's a thing that we have to navigate. That's a little bit different. And then once fall season starts, um, obviously ramping up into school, you're trying to get back into that pace. And then by the time you get through, I don't know, I'd say halfway through the fall season, the tempo slows down a little bit and then you get ramped up for winter. The nice thing about winter, coach, is that 
there's only two sports at our school in the winter, soccer and basketball. So as busy as I am coaching, um, it's not like the nine sports we have going on in the fall or in the spring. And so I get a little bit of a reprieve there. Um, but the nice thing is that the tempo of the season in each of the three seasons, you kind of have this heavy lift at the beginning, and then you kind of have this thing slow down, even as you're getting into the more serious league play, but then you're kind of ramping up for the next season. And so I'm blessed. I have a ton of help here. Um, and, and it makes the job super enjoyable. Um, but also I don't feel as, as pinched as I would imagine many of my colleagues do that don't have the, the same time to do their job. Like we still don't have full-time athletic directors at a ton of schools out here and, or the support to do it. Thank you very much. <clears throat> Let's talk for a minute about the Stevenson school, which I'm going to have you share with our audience because I had no idea where it was until about two weeks ago. But for those who are golf aficionados, it's on the peninsula between Spyglass and Poppy Hills, which, along with Pebble Beach, are the three courses used in the national program every year, which is probably coming up here in probably, what, three or four weeks. So talk about the uniqueness of your school uh, being in a place like that. Well, so to follow up on what you said, so we are... <clears throat> On the central coast of California, for those of you not familiar with California, we are about two hours south of San Francisco um, on the Monterey Peninsula, which includes, as you mentioned, Carmel-by-the-Sea, Pebble Beach, Pacific Grove, and then we're about two hours north of San Luis Obispo. Um, and to your point, we are in Pebble Beach, which is a, a gated community that is world famous, the 17 mile drive most people are familiar with. So we're inside the gates of Pebble Beach. Uh, the school actually sits on the 18th tee and the 17th green of Spyglass Hill, which is a top 25 golf course in the world. Uh, unfortunately, we have a really tough time having to use that as our home golf course, um, which is tough for the kids to have to be able to play that course often. Um, and then Pebble Beach, which you mentioned where the AT&T Pro-Am is played along with Spyglass Hill, is right down the street. It's a five-minute walk. Um, and then Poppy's here as well, along with Monterey Peninsula Country Club, et cetera. Um, but <clears throat> to your real question, you know, what is that like? Uh, number one, it, it's a blessing, obviously, being here. Number two, um, we're kind of an interesting... Um, what, how would I say this? We're in an interesting space considering we are a, uh, boarding school prep school, similar to what you would find in the Northeast, but there's not a huge presence of us in California. And since you're doing it, UI AAA, I said this to you the other day, the best comp for you would be like Wasatch Academy, but it's, it's a similar okay, deal to that, yeah. but our, our, our nearest competitive situation other than the all girls school here on the peninsula of Santa Catalina uh, is down in Santa Barbara, where you have Kate Thatcher Dunn, uh, Los Angeles, where you have the web school. And then there's a handful up in the Bay area. Uh, but we're kind of this unique outlier uh, that doesn't really fit into a normal, um, the normal competitive atmosphere where you're playing. Uh, in addition, the, 
the ways in which the Northeast boarding schools operate um, are very different because they play in private school leagues where we're part of the, st the state federation. So we don't have the ability to recruit athletes in the same way that those schools do. Right. So we're, we're like uh, more of a college admissions type deal where we're trying to get a lot of interest and then, um, you know, try to find the best fits for our school. Um, but yeah, to your point, uh, we sit in probably one of the most beautiful places of, in the world. Uh, it's been called the uh, most beautiful meeting of land and sea in the world. If you ever get a chance to come out here, you can't do much better uh, than visiting the Monterey Peninsula. Excellent. Talk about the job of athletic administrator and how has it changed now from when you first took the job? I would say it changed more right before I got the job than since I've taken the job. But but let me dive into this a little bit, uh, especially the uniqueness at my school. And actually, I lied. That's not fair. It's changed over the last couple of years from a school standpoint. So at our school, co-curricular participation is obligatory, uh, both for students and for our faculty. Meaning if you come to school here, you don't have the luxury of showing up at, you know, whatever, 8.30 and leaving at 3. You are going to be in the after-school programming in some capacity, be it in the theater, uh, being doing robotics, doing technical work for the theater, being in our outdoor education program where we have uh, rock climbing and surfing and, and things of that nature, uh, or in the traditional interscholastics program. Um, and so as the athletic director, one of my roles early was to make sure all of the students were involved in something, uh, even if it wasn't sports related. So I was responsible for making sure kids were in the theater, so to speak, right? Or um, in their yoga class, whatever it might be. Uh, over the last two years, we now have a dean of co-curricular uh, education who is basically absorbing oversight of the outdoor ed programs and the non-interscholastic sports programs to make sure that those kids are doing what they're supposed to do there, uh, which has been a nice shift. But in regards to um, the overarching athletics piece, what I can tell you is, excuse me, right before the year I was assuming the role of athletic director was the year we were merging our two existing leagues into one giant super league. And uh, as part of that, I was I was put on the formation committee within the league with a couple other principals, a couple of athletic directors, as we were laying out the bylaws for this new equity-based league that we currently play in. Um, as part of that, um, I was able to kind of get behind the scenes and learn how a lot of these things work outside of the site level and um, ultimately end up being the chairperson of our league for the last six years um, as we've navigated that. And so um, some of the things that I think have changed a lot, not necessarily for us, but for some of the schools we're dealing with is transportation has been a big issue for, for some schools, figuring out how they can get to games. Um, and then obviously this is a nationwide deal, but uh, official shortages um, are now a major 
uh, facet in, in how we lay out schedules. So um, one of my colleagues, John Radcliffe at Greenfield High School is a mathematical genius. And he lays out all the schedules where, um, you know, he has them on a spreadsheet to try to make sure there's not more than so many games on each night so that we have enough officials to cover games. And, um, you know, since I've been in this, there's been more and more of a prevalence of games getting canceled due to not having officials to cover them, which I imagine is similar in most places. Uh, but I would say that's been the biggest issue that we've faced in regards to um, being able to get out there and compete. Thank you. Fascinating insight to what you've been facing out there. Let me ask you about your journey with the California State Athletic Directors Association. I assume you've been with them for quite some time and then how you got involved with the NIAAA nationally. So Gene Ashen, who you probably know really well, um, is the kind of dean of high school athletics in our area. And she's part of our league. So one of my mentors and speaks at every league meeting on the agenda is CSADA, NIAAA, um, CCSADA news. <clears throat> and she, you know, that's her moment to talk about all the things that are coming up, continuing education. Um all the opportunities to grow and network as an administrator that uh, most of us getting involved have no idea exist. Uh, as part of her involvement over the years, our league has always paid for uh, membership for our schools to be part of both the CSADA and the NIAAA, which is an unusual setup based on what I understand to be true with our, our fellow ADs in the section. And so by default, I was registered when I became the AD. Um, and then by default, you know, Gene was, hey, you need to go to this conference. You need to do X, Y, and Z. And so taking her lead, you know, the first year we were here uh, was the first year I went to our, our annual CSADA conference, which I think that year was in Reno um, years ago. And so let me clarify, that would, that would be Reno, California instead of Reno, Nevada, as the Californians call it. <laughs> you got it. So interestingly enough, when we were going to have our California State ADA conference in Reno, I was like, why are we going to Nevada? And then when it was explained to me, it's like, well, they, they move it around between the north and the south, and they try to do it in a place where there's convention centers and people can easily access it. So interestingly enough, that was one year. We haven't been back to Reno for some reason, no idea. Uh, but we bounced between Santa Clara, uh, San Diego, um, Oakland, just different areas where, where we would go. But anyway, so Gene got me into it, uh, took a few classes, started trying to figure out how to um, better grow my skill set, uh, pursued my CAA, got that done over the last couple of years. And then also we have in our section, California has uh, 10 sections um, because the state is so big. And, and we're part of the Central Coast section. You have the Northern section, the Sac Joaquin, San Diego section. Excuse me, you can figure it out. But ultimately, each section also has an athletic director advisory committee. So I'm part of that as the, the chairperson of our league. And then I'm also um, part of the Central Coast section athletic director association where I've been the vice president of that for two years. And it was just kind of a slow trickle hutch, if, if I'm being honest, of 
Okay, you get your toe in the water and 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 then it's like, oh, what are you doing, Gene? You're going to do what? Oh, cool. Can I go? Yeah. And then then you just kind of follow along and, and you kind of figure out how to do certain things. And so um, I've become more involved uh, just by being present and and soaking up the opportunities that are there. And even when when uh, in Orlando, it's the first year I've ever been to the NIAAA because I coach basketball and it's in the middle of basketball season every year. And the only reason I went this year is because I didn't think I would be coaching. And then I ended up coaching and had to miss a couple of days of practice, which uh, I was in the back of the general session when John Gordon was speaking, watching uh, watching our boys game. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, actually had to receive a call and go outside to deal with the situation that had happened at the game. So, you know, just trying to juggle that and figure out how to get more involved over the years based on, you know, what what people share with me. And I try to, uh, when, when people make suggestions, uh, I try to take them seriously and be like, all right, I'll, I'll try that out. Let me go see what it's like. Thank you for sharing that. That's fascinating. I have a follow-up question about the, uh, the CIF. My understanding is there's over 500 schools in the Southern section down San Diego below LA. And if I'm correct, there's, less than 18 in the Oakland section? Is that still the case? Or, or is that still that disparity between the size of school in each section? So I don't have the exact number, but I think there's something like over 1,200 schools in the state. Um, and I do know the answer to your second follow-up question, which is the number of schools in, say, the Oakland section. And so it's it's really unique Um as a landscape that let's take the Northern section, for example, which runs from, let's say Sacramento North all the way up to the border at Oregon. And it's a lot more rural area. You don't have as many schools as you have in the Sac Joaquin section that runs from Sacramento down to Modesto. And it's in the cent the, the, the central Valley or the North Coast section, which is basically uh, the East Bay. So Oakland, all that area and everything north along that side of the bay. Uh, or our section, which has 150 some odd schools that runs from San Francisco all the way down the coast and then into the valley in King City. So we have these larger, larger areas that obviously are going to have more schools. You also, to your point, have the San Francisco City section, which basically includes all of the public schools that are part of the San Francisco Unified area. And then the Oakland City section is the same thing. It's basically all the public schools in Oakland. Why they have their own sections, I have no idea. Uh, it's always been the case. Um, but yeah, they are two really small outlier sections um, that exist as standalone inside of these bigger sections around them. And does that, I'm assuming, and I've asked this of Gene before, but I'm assuming that could cause problems. For example, you've got these 10 sections in California. It's just like the United States. You've got the big states, California, New York, Texas. You have a smaller state, Wyoming, Montana, Utah, and they all get a senator, but of course they don't have the same number of representatives. I assume that that could be some issues with <clears throat> athletically but I, i'm not sure how that works but it's like working with 10 different states it's like working with 10 different states in one state 
I'll use basketball for an example, um, just in how they work. Uh, so you play in your, your league, which I think you described as a region in Utah, but, but your league is made up of the schools that, um, are generally near you. Right. And, and you're playing whatever that looks like. Ours is a little bit different as an outlier, but say like the Sac Joaquin section, they have 30 something leagues or 20 something leagues with six teams in each of them that they realign every couple of years. So your league would be those schools that you play in every sport. And then beyond that, you have your section. So we're in the central coast section. So we're in the Pacific coast athletic league. Uh, and we play in the central coast section which is part of Northern California as far as the California Interscholastic Federation goes. And so in basketball, you'll play your league season. Then you'll go to the section playoffs. And from the section, each section gets so many berths to the NorCal championships. And so we have, I think, uh, 22 berths to the NorCal championships from our section, meaning there's basically the the champion and the runner-up from each division that gets to go on to the NorCals and in the NorCal tournament so if if each school or each each division open through division five each section is sending two to four schools per division the Oakland se section and the San Francisco section similarly get their runner-up and their champion so they have representation but it's not in every division because they only have one division in those sections. And so they, if, if low high school wins in basketball in the San Francisco city section in their division two school, you know, they slide into the pool in NorCal's wherever that happens to be. So to your point, they have appropriate representation based on the number of schools advancing to section playoffs in whatever sport, as far as representation at the state level, um, this is probably an unpopular statement and it, it there's a kernel of truth to it but i don't necessarily I haven't talked it through but what it seems like is that the uh southern california um is the the driving factor of a lot of the decisions made at the state level um in regards to um how they're navigating certain situations that come up and i think it's it's most likely because of the population base that's there. So you have more interactions, you have more things that happen. And so ultimately legislation uh, is, is often reactive to things that are going on. And so um, I think that's the bigger issue is that you ultimately have uh, a state of 40 million people and you're trying to navigate sports for all of those schools. Um, and as a, uh, as a left-leaning state, uh, the bureaucracy uh, is legislate everything. Um, and, you know, which comes with the, the benefit of you get it in writing, it's there. But if it's wrong, it takes forever to undo it. Well said. Let me have you talk to our audience about your first conference, which was the Orlando conference. A three prong question. You mentioned that you took five courses, which bless you, because I only took four in once. And that was enough for me. But obviously, you took one of the courses Friday night. I want you to talk specifically about the 790, which is where we met, because I only know the course from instructing it. I want it from the student's point of view. 
And then I want you to talk about now your journey to become a national faculty member. So I'll turn it over to you. So before we got on, you were asking if I'm a CAA or a CMAA. And I said, well, I took five classes, so I'm on my way to becoming a certified master athletic administrator. And that was kind of my my mission when I got there. It was like, all right, let me let me get all this coursework done so then I could focus on the second part of this. And so I landed at the airport at like 4.30 and got to the conference center at 5.45 and my class started at six. Um, and then I had one the next day, had the one I took with you the next night, and then I had two on the last day. And then I flew back uh, the day before the conference ended. So it was kind of like power session. Um, but the the classes that are there are super informative and they're in these four hour blocks where you're just kind of drinking out of a fire hose. And from that standpoint, you get a ton of information, but more importantly, you get these, these booklets that you get to take home that are resources for pretty much whatever you need to do. So you mentioned while we were talking the other day about there's now a class on making handbooks, right? Which is super valuable. If you're listening, you don't have athletic handbook parent handbook, student athlete handbook, coach's handbook. You might want to put one of those together. Um, it's a great point, place to point people to when there are questions. But ultimately, the 790 class, which you taught, um, I ended up in kind of whimsically because uh, I realized that morning that the class I was signed up for, I think it was 514, that I had already taken, but it was like three years ago. And so I didn't remember I'd taken it. And I was looking on my transcript and I'm like, oh, I already took this one. So what can I switch into? And as I was talking to the registrar, she was like, well, you have to take this one to be able to teach classes. And Jean had uh, mentioned at one point that, hey, you should get certified to teach these classes at the state level. And one of my best friends, Eddie Wilson, is one of the SAC Joaquin section vice presidents now. And he, he taught a class at the last conference and I was giving him grief about it. Uh, I actually ended up in his class. Um, and so I was like, well, hell, if Eddie can do it. Um, and so I was like, all right, let me go take that class. And truth be told, um, and, and I'm not trying to stroke you here, but it was the best class I took because it was a good reminder of methodology, of, of pedagogy, of how you engage, of different approaches to teaching. And it was ironic because all of the things that you all did as an instructing group, which was basically avoiding direct instruction, figuring out ways where you're getting different voices, um, doing activities to keep people engaged, is what anybody learns in their credentialing program or in their, their years as an apprentice teacher or student teacher. And then I think what ends up happening is you get caught up in trying to cover content versus trying to make sure people learn things, right? And it's it's ultimately this delicate balance, uh, even as a coach. It's like, I, look, we went over this all week. Well, clearly they didn't learn it because they keep throwing the ball to the other team in my case, right? So, so ultimately, I left your class and then went to the last class I was at, and and it was the opposite of everything you said to do. To do, and we were kind of talking about that in the class, where it was like you got the first hour, you got the second hour, and it was just like exactly the opposite. So it was a good eye opener in regards to just being a teacher in general, and how you engage uh, students, um, which then 
you get to bring back to your school site in regards to coaching, teaching, um, and just navigating a room of, of other adults and how you can help, uh, how should I say, discover things versus just kind of dictating to them, this is the deal. Talked in for a moment <clears throat> since the conference about your path. We've had some communication and we're going to get you on a national faculty and talk about that to some people out there that are considering taking that same path. Well, again, funny story. So just based on our engagement in the class and us having a follow-up, you were like, hey, you should explore this. And I was like, oh, here comes Gene again. All right, if you say so. <laughs> so uh, you followed up, sent me an application. I filled it out, um, which is an opportunity to join the teaching faculty at the national level. Um, I'm presenting this year at our state conference uh, to a, a breakout session. And then um, I've now followed up with our, our CS ADA to let them know, hey, if you need me to teach a class, I'm happy to do it. But it, it's like anything, the more involved you are, the more you're going to learn, right? So if you're teaching something, you're going to master the content a lot more than if you're just sitting there receiving the information. And so for me, that was the um, the attraction of it all is like, ultimately, look, I'm taking this class and you guys are citing like legal cases out of your back pocket. And I'm like turning through the book and it's just freaking me out. Cause it's like one of these things I'll tell people that are listening to ADs, like you go to one of these conferences and you take these legal classes, you're going to start questioning why you're doing what you're doing. Um, and, and not in a bad way. It's just things you don't think about until they're sitting there right in front of you. And you're like, seriously, um, and so I think that's uh, also the intrigue of how can we inoculate ourselves against ending up in one of those books. Um, and I think being able to teach some of the content uh, only makes you better at that. And I'll also tell you this. Um, I was fortunate enough to have a guy named Dr. Jim Forkham work with me uh, for a handful of years, who is a lifetime athletic director, most mostly at the junior college level. But he was retired when I got the job and I had an assistant role open. that was part time. And I was like, coach, you want to come out of retirement and be my mentor? He's like, yeah, sure. And boy, the stuff I learned in the three years that he was here, just that he has in his his vault and Rolodex of information, uh, you know, are things you wouldn't even think about on a day to day basis. So so the more you can surround yourself with people uh, that are experienced, that are new, uh, just allows you to kind of cover your blind spots. Good for you. Let me know uh, where Joey and AB put you at the national staff. I look forward to seeing you next year in Austin. Justin, what's the favorite part of your job? So the favorite part of my job is our, our interactions with kids just on a day to day. Um, and I know as you in some schools, as you go into administration, you're less student facing. But at our school, as a boarding school, again, I'm in the dorms. I'm out wandering around. We have a different level of interaction with these kids. And ultimately, just the day to day of you never what, know what the day is going to bring. Um, you have your kind of routine and you have these these bookends of how school kind of works. But every day is kind of a different challenge is my favorite part of the job, uh, being able to help kids navigate their process, being able to see them find success in whatever it is that they're trying to do. Uh, getting kids to try something that they didn't want to try and realizing that it was good for them um, is what I really enjoy doing. Um, and and I think 
helping some of our students that are less athletically inclined understand the value of sports and how it will serve them in life um, is what really brings me joy. So when I hear back from a kid who's graduating, giving a little senior Vesper speech, talking about, you know, I was scared to go into Mr. Clamo's office and he made me go, you know, run cross country and I didn't want to do it, but now it's kind of the best thing that I did. It's like, ultimately, you know, what you're trying to do with students as, as they grow to put them into these, these uncomfortable situations that hopefully are going to stretch them. Well said, we'll finish with a couple of questions. The first being, You've got Justin's two suggestions for a brand new athletic administrator. They need to follow your suggestions in order to be a success. What would your two suggestions be? Uh, number one, find somebody who has done what you're doing as a mentor and ask them questions and be vulnerable. And, and so best example is when I took over as the AD, so Jeff Young was the athletic director at Stevenson School for 36 years. He retired. His assistant <clears throat> followed him for two years, and then I took over. And at that time, Jeff had moved out of the area. Um, and so me landing in the job without him being around anymore, uh, I could get him on the phone, obviously, but the guy at the neighboring school, Pacific Grove, had been the AD there for 20 years. So I reached out to Todd and I was like, hey, man, you have time to meet. He's like, yeah. So I went and spent an hour with Todd just asking him questions. I obviously hired Dr. Forkham to come and and show me what I didn't know. And then to be around people like Gene Ashen and John Radcliffe and Todd Thatcher and uh, what you would call the OGs uh, in my league um, were important connections to make. Because ultimately at your school site, you may be dealing with something that you think is super unique and, and super specific and nobody's ever dealt with it before. But if you can find those people that have been doing this for a long time, like yourself, they've come across it at some point. And if not, they're going to help you figure out how to navigate that. So that'd be number one. Make sure you surround yourself with people that are smarter than you and ask them a lot of questions. And then number two, I would say, before you even take the job, you need to make sure that you're a mission appropriate fit for where you are. So is your mission and vision in alignment with that of the school, of the school leadership? So when I was appointed athletic director, I had a conversation with our president at the time when our, our former AD was getting ready to leave. I was like, hey, I'd be interested in this. And he was like, hey, let's let's have a conversation. So we went on a walk spent about an hour together talking about kind of where he was at and where I was at. And then he was like, Hey, I'm going to need you to write some stuff down and, and uh, put some things on paper for other people to read. Meanwhile, I'm going to go out and look nationally for a replacement. I'm like, cool, no problem. And that exercise of writing down your philosophy and what you believe in and where the areas of the school that you think you are doing really well and where are the areas that you can move the needle and then being able to share that with the administration gives you a lot of insight into whether or not it's going to work. And, and some, not all jobs are good jobs for you. Uh, and so ultimately figuring out before you even get in that chair, are you and the school a mission appropriate fit for one another? And I think if, if you don't do that, then you end up banging your head against the wall 
because you're not in alignment with those that you serve. Um, and I think that's the other thing that I thought was really important is that making sure that you're you're rowing the same direction as the people that um, you're working with and for. Well said. Thanks for sharing those suggestions. We'll finish with this. Justin, what questions should I have asked you that I failed to ask you? Oh, Hutch, uh, I have no idea, but let's think this thing through for a second. Um, I would say, you know, what are some of the unique challenges you faced at your school site in regards to doing the job there versus somewhere else, uh, especially for people that maybe have been somewhere else? Um, similar to what I asked you on the pod, it's like, hey, you know, what, what are the things that you realized right away you needed to figure out when you took the job? Um, I think maybe something in regards to how do you navigate the adult relationships on campus versus the student conversations on campus, because that's a completely different dynamic. Um, and then I would say, uh, you know, what systems do you have in place to make sure that the students are always kept at the center of the equation and you don't let adult problems get in the way of kids? Well, let's 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 ask that last one then for the last question. How do you make sure those students are the center of the equation? We'll finish with that. Well, I think if your approach and your mission, that's the focus of it, then that's what you always come back to, right? Is this what's best for kids? And I, I'll use our league as an example. So when we merged, there was what we had was the Mission Trail Athletic League, which had two divisions of let's call it seven and the Monterey Bay league, which had two divisions of let's call it seven merged. We had a couple of supplemental members. And so now all of a sudden, and, and these were predominantly geographic leagues at the time and school size based leagues to now where our 32 team league, the largest school is 3,500 and the smallest school is like a hundred. And so how do you serve all of those constituents? And Part of the deal with the Equity League was this is what's best for kids. It doesn't benefit kids to be the perennial doormat in this league, in football, let's say, just because they happen to be close to this other school. How do we make it to where all kids are getting the opportunity to compete in their sports based on where they currently happen to be on their trajectory and timeline? And the truth of it is it's a logistical nightmare for the adults involved. I mean, it, it's a mess and trying to figure out schedules when the teams in your league are switching every year. It, it, I mean, it's got to drive John crazy, um, but it's what's best for kids. So us driving an extra 20 minutes to go play a team that's more our level versus, you know, getting beat 8-0 in soccer because the school happens to be next door or having to play football against a school that has 80 people on their roster when we have 25 right? That's not good for kids. And so ultimately our league leads from that. And then our school, obviously the situation we're in is, you know, how are we best serving kids? So one of those things is ultimately like, look, practices here are 90 minutes and too bad if you can't get it done in that time, because the kids have study hall, they got all these AP classes and uh, they got other things pulling on, on their attention. Um, you know, another example, Hutch would be if a kid is we have a wilderness trip that's an 11-day backpacking trip that our sophomores go on and some of our juniors and seniors are co-leaders on the trip meaning you have adult 
that's taking them out. And then you have upperclassmen who are also taking them out. And, you know, I have a girl on my basketball team that's a co-leader who missed two of our tournament games to go on a training trip. And ultimately, historically, it would have been on that kid to disappoint some one of the two adults that she was working with. And, you know, ultimately what we try to do now is get together as the adults in advance and not put the kid in the situation where they have to make a choice. It's like, ultimately, okay, how many of these training trips are there? How many games do we have? Where can we help this kid not feel that they're letting somebody down, uh, even though they might not show up at my basketball game, which is kind of like a, a different deal where you have schools and coaches and teams. It's like, oh, Yo, you missed practice, you're off the team. And it's like, well, no, hold on. You can't, you can't ask a kid to be involved in all the things that your school has going on and then punish them for doing something that you've asked them to do. And so I think kind of the culture of that and making sure that you understand all the moving pieces. And I think you and I may have talked about this when you get tunnel vision as a coach of a specific sport, you don't see all the other things that are going on. So you need people that are going to see those other things and have transparent relationships with them where you can have conversations. That's like, Hey, look, this kid's feeling stuck. You got to figure this one out. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. That's some great insight. And for our listeners out there, yes, if we always remember to put the kids first, we're going to be okay. On that note, that wraps it up for this edition of the UIAAA Connection. Again, our special guest today has been Justin Climo, Certified Athletic Administrator, the Director of Athletics at Stevenson School. Thanks, Justin, for being on the podcast. Hutch, thanks for having me. Uh, looking forward to dropping your episode next Wednesday. Make sure you shamelessly self-promote it. Get it out to all your people so I get a Utah listenership and uh, looking to follow up and watch these things that you're releasing. We'll do it. You'll be on the first week of February, about a, a month after I'm on yours. So appreciate it for our listeners. We hope you tune in again next week for another Perfect. That's my. The... Yeah, yeah. That's, that's my birthday week, Coach, so that's going to work out just fine. All right. For our listeners, we hope you tune in again next week for another edition of the UI AAA Connection. Mm -hmm.